Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. So we went on sabbatical uh, uh, last year, and there's some things that God has rewired in me and taught me, and uh, one of them is like leaning back on Him. So I want to talk about that today. So if you have a Bible, turn to John 13. John 13, 21, and I'll read down from verse 21 to verse 29, and then I'll pray one, one, more, one more time before we get started. John 13. Verse 21, after he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which one of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. But no one in the mill understood why Jesus had said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. This is God's word. Let's pray. God. Would you bring illumination to our hearts and our minds, the spirit of the living God who lives and dwells within us, light those places in our lives now that need this word. Light those places, um, maybe dark places that we've kept hidden or ways that we're avoiding or distracting ourselves from these places. Just shine your brilliant light on them. Illuminate us our hearts and our minds. So we can grasp this, take this in, metabolize it, and live it. Pray that you would anoint me, God, um, as someone who's proclaiming and teaching and communicating the scriptures now. I just submit all of my capacities to you. Pray in the the strong name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Um, Yeah, so I lead a church in San Francisco, and as um, you may imagine, being a follower of Jesus and being in ministry in SF is not an easy thing. We've been in San Francisco for nine years. We started as a church just three months after you guys started. We started in January 2010. And reflecting back on these last years of, or first years of ministry in San Francisco, I think the way I would um, summarize ministry in San Francisco, in the city, for me, would be saying that I tried, especially the first like five, six years, I tried with everything in my capacity, with everything that I had to lean in, to lean into teaching, to lean into leadership, to lean into the voice that I believe that God had given me for the city, to lean into leading, to lean into opportunities. I said yes to almost everything the first five years. I leaned into community and making a sustainable life in the insane city of San Francisco. I leaned into a lot of things. I think for most part, for the most part, the message that we get from our culture today, especially in cities like our cities, is to lean in. We are told to lean into our careers, We're to lean into networking and getting our 10-year plan planned and executed. We're to lean into relationships and opportunities, lean into ministry and personal growth, lean into leadership, lean into, like, 
doing all of that while trying to start a family and leaning to all the other ways that we're supposed to be leaning in while we're leaning into family. Sheryl Sandberg, the COO of Facebook, has a wildly popular book on women in leadership or women in the workplace called Lean In. And the message is to women to lean into your careers because, she says, men lean into their careers and women shouldn't be be afraid of being ambitious. So lean in. Okay, so now we're all leaning in. Men are leaning in, women are leaning in, and there's a good place for that. I think there's a good place for women for, uh, in their futures and in their careers for women's equality in the workplace and to lean into that. I think there's a place for that for sure. However, with all of us leaning in, John here gives us an enduring and vivid picture of what discipleship to Jesus looks like. And his picture is this, lean back. In our text, uh, it was the night of Jesus' betrayal. And Jesus was enjoying the Last Supper meal with his disciples, giving them what would be the first communion supper, the first communion meal. After dinner, Jesus removes his outer garment, and he kneels down to wash his disciples' feet, um, a act reserved for slaves. And after they're after the supper, they're all lingering around the table. The table would have been like shaped like a, almost like a capital U, and they would have been sitting on the outside. There was no chairs. They would have been sitting on cushions, and so the servants can come on the inside and serve the meal. So they would all have been lounging around the table. They would have been leaning on their left elbow or their left side so that their right hand could be used for eating and drinking. And as they sat there reclining, Jesus starts to explain to them how one of his 12 closest friends will betray him. Like right in the middle of this whole beautiful last supper, Jesus starts to say, one of you in this room right now that have been with me day in and day out for three years, one of you is going to betray me, deceptively betray me. And the room gets incredibly intense. I mean, you thought that meals with your extended family were awkward. Like, this is, it gets really, really awkward. And Judas is just sitting there. And Judas is sitting there with hatred steaming in his heart towards Jesus. He's tired of Jesus' teachings. He's tired of Jesus' promises. He's sick of Jesus' way of life, all the things that Jesus said he would do, but he, he's not doing them in his timing or in his way that, that Judas feels. And so finally, Judas agrees to help get rid of Jesus. Judas is plotting to betray Jesus, and Jesus knows it. One mystical writer puts it like this. He says this about betrayal. He says, betrayal is more than a separation or rejection. To betray is to use the secrets of a person's personal life, thoughts confided to a friend, and to turn against that person, and to use their confided thought or words in order to hurt and defile them to destroy a reputation. Judas betrayed Jesus. He knew Jesus' secrets. He knew his thoughts. Judas even knew where Jesus was going to be located. Think about this. Judas even knew that Jesus would not put up a fight, that he would go quietly. He, he knew Jesus being anti-violent. He goes, he won't, he won't put up a fight. You don't need these, 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 these swords. Like, he knew this. And during the meal, Jesus is no longer able to contain his emotion. He's no longer able to contain his anguish. And he, and he says, he starts to say, Someone's going to betray me. Someone in this room is going to betray me. Look at verse 21. Jesus, it says, was troubled in spirit 
or some of your translations say he was in deep anguish, and he testified, very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. In this moment here, around this table, it's like Jesus isn't emotionally able to handle and hold on to the information anymore. I don't know if you've ever been there in your own humanity where you can't emotionally hold on to a piece of information anymore when you're around people that you love. Like you're so broken, you're so torn up inside, as soon as you get around people you love, you just kind of start spilling out and going, I can't hold this to myself any longer. This is what's going on. This is exactly where Jesus was around this table. He's around this table and he's like, I I can't hold on to this information anymore. One of you is gonna betray me. And he's in deep anguish at this point. Disciples at this at this information, they themselves are shattered. They themselves are stunned. And maybe not by what Jesus said, but maybe by the way Jesus would have said it. Probably trembling, his voice quivering, his words through tears. Jesus is not ice cold in this moment. He's just not like, hey, one of you is gonna betray me, like a Jedi. He's broken. And he he probably shared this through like like a quivering lip. And finally, Judas gets up and leaves the room. But I don't know if you remember from the text that we just read. It's a very strange exchange. I don't know if you read the Bible and you find things that are weird and you start laughing. I, la- I often, when I read this passage, laugh because it's super intense. They're all sitting there lounging around and Jesus says, someone's gonna betray me. And they're like, Who- who's gonna betray you? And Peter is sitting next to the person who's leaning on Jesus. We'll get to him in a second. And he goes, hey, you're closest to Jesus. Ask him who it is. And the guy leaning on Jesus' chest like, Lord, who is it? And Jesus is like, you, know, you want to know who it is? I'm about to dip this bread in a cup, and I'm going to give it to whoever it is. Here you go, Judas. And Judas is like, thank you? And he eats it. And he just gets up, and he walks out. And everybody else is just, everyone's around going, that was super weird. What does it mean? And John even has to write, they didn't know what was going on. They thought that Judas left to go get food or to serve the poor. Like, what just, who is it? Him. And he leaves. It's just super weird. When, Ju- when Judas finally does leave the room, John makes this comment. Look at verse 30. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. Why does John say it was night? Because it was night, okay? That's why, that's the first reason. But also, John loves to play with the light and dark metaphor. He actually does this in the very beginning of the book. Look, look at John 1.4. John, at the prologue of his book, says, in him was life, speaking of Jesus, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. From the very beginning, John plays with the polarities of light and dark, day and night, and John loves playing with these polarities throughout his book. And so here, what John is doing is he's saying is this, when Jesus who is the light of the world, is being betrayed, John says, and it was night. Why? Because it was night, but also because Judas was turning away from the light of the world and stepping into the deepest darkness and most cold place anyone has ever known. Judas is rejecting Jesus' love and stepping into the night. It started with Judas losing trust in Jesus, And it progressed by opposing Jesus. We have several accounts of Judas opposing Jesus. And then it culminated in an outright rejection of Jesus' love. And from that point, when Judas rejects Jesus' love, no light can come in anymore. 
Judas was in darkness. And in darkness, you make some of the worst decisions a human can make. But during this dark scene, we're giving another polarity because John loves to play with polarities. Another contrast to the darkness that Judas is in. And it's in this unnamed disciple. We don't know who this disciple is. We're not told in the narrative, but we all know who it is, right? John does this all the time. John loves talking about himself in the third person. So John's like, there's this disciple whom Jesus loved. I don't know who he is. Like, we all know it's you. You can just say it. He does this later on at the end of the book, too, where he outruns Peter to the tomb. He's like, and the disciple whom Jesus loved outran Peter. Like, yeah, we get it, John. Jesus loves you more, and you're fast. Like, we get it. But he doesn't name, any, he doesn't name himself here. He's like, this unnamed disciple, we're given this another polarity. As Judas is plotting betrayal, and who's, there's another disciple. As Judas is plotting betrayal, there's another disciple who's literally leaning back on Jesus' chest, who's in so close of relationship or fellowship and intimacy with Jesus that, he, that he's leaning on him, who is there in trust and in comfort. The text almost makes it look as if that this disciple gets closer to Jesus after Christ confesses his agony because at first it says that he's sitting next to Jesus, and then when he confesses his agony, I have an anxious spirit, I have agony, it says that he leans on Jesus. It's like he's so close to Jesus that when he, when he hears and he feels Jesus' heart break, he gets closer to him in intimacy. And I mean, I want you to think about like how, how intimate it is to lean on someone's chest. Like I said, we're not told who the disciple is next to Jesus. I like that because it could be any disciple. It could be any one of us. But here's the polarity. Here it is. Judas rejects Jesus' love, and the beloved disciple absorbs Jesus' love. He draws near to Jesus' love. He literally places his body up next to Jesus' body. Now, these are extreme, but if you've ever read John, he's a black and white kind of person. So what John is saying is this. You are either moving away from Jesus' love in more and more rejection, or you are drawing ever nearer to Jesus in intimacy. And that's it. That these, are the two, these are the two polarities. These are the two things that, that Jesus, that John is pointing out to us. Now let's turn our attention to this disciple who's, who's leaning on Jesus' chest. Let's think about him for a second. They're reclining around this table. Remember, no chairs, just cushions. They're leaning, like everyone's leaning. And this disciple is leaning on Jesus' chest. I want you just to think about that for a second. I mean, imagine... If you came into church and Darren and I were sitting in the front row and I was just like leaning on his chest, like I was just in there. I was just like all in there. You'd be like, whoa, I've been trying to get there for years, but I, I've never, how, how'd you do that? Like what, like and, and for, you, you, you might even be, you might even like feel like you're, you've walked in on something you shouldn't look at, right? You'd be like, oh, oh, can I look at that? I don't know. That's just weird. It's that intimate. This is, this is the disciple. He's on Jesus' chest, his, um, if you have, anyone read the Old King James here? Anyone? One. Nice. We had two first service. One. Okay. If you have the Old King James, it says that Jesus is, uh, uh, this disciple is leaning on Jesus' bosom. Now, we don't use that word bosom anymore. I think we should bring it back, but that's a different story. <laughs> he's leaning on his chest, and it says he's leaning on it, and when you put your head on someone's chest, when you put your head on their bosom, your ear is just above that person's heart so that you're able to hear their heartbeat. Think about that. 
The disciple whom Jesus loved is leaning back on Jesus, his head on his chest, his ear just above Christ's heart, and he's able to hear Jesus' heart beat. And with that picture, we get John's ultimate image of discipleship. John has actually been building up to this in his whole, his whole gospel. And he gets to the culmination of his gospel and the enduring picture of discipleship of here's the gospel of Jesus, here's what it looks like to follow him, ultimately brimming to this place where this disciple is leaning on Jesus up against his chest and he says, this is the picture, this is the image of what discipleship to Jesus looks like. Discipleship to Jesus is being so close to Jesus, being so intimate with him that you're literally hearing his heartbeat. A disciple, next slide, a disciple is someone For John, a disciple is someone who is leaning back on Jesus, hearing his heartbeat, and from that perspective, looking out into the world. That is is what John is saying. This is what a disciple is. Someone who's that close, someone who wants to be that close, who continues to want to draw nearer and nearer to Jesus, who moves toward Jesus in intimacy every opportunity he gets. You guys all know uh, John Mark Comer, a a good friend of Darren and I, pastor of Bridgetown in Portland. His son, um, his youngest son is Moses. Moses is 10. And Moses loves to cuddle. Moses loves to cuddle. Uh, He loves to lean back. The first time I spent a significant amount of time with Mo was in Hawaii a few years ago. He must have been like um, maybe seven years old at the time. And they were in Hawaii before we were in Hawaii. So when my wife and I got to Hawaii, we went straight to the beach and they were there. And they're like, Dave, come out and play in the waves. So I'm out, I just go, jump out in the ocean. I'm playing in the waves. I'm grabbing Mo, throwing him in the water, playing around with them. And Mo, every single time I throw him, he swims right back up to me, gets like super close, just gets right here and just, just gets in my face and do it again and I do it again. And then one time he swam up, just got really close, right into my face. Serious look I've ever seen on any kid's face. He says, Dave, when we're done playing, can we go onto the beach and cuddle? And I was like, I was like, well, buddy, you know, we can ask your parents. I don't know, like, what that, I honestly don't know the rules around that whole thing. I don't know. I mean, but that, that, that heart, that, and Moses still does it, even when I'm hanging out with him today. Like, we were just over there for Sabbath a few months ago, and Moses comes up, and he just, like, lays on my lap and just, just sits there on my lap, just, like, wants to cuddle. That, that picture is a picture we get of what enduring discipleship is. It's like, I want to be as, I want to get in, I want to just get so close to Jesus that I'm literally right there next to him. The enduring picture of discipleship that we get from John is in Jesus' chest, that we would see all of our chaotic world, and we live in a chaotic world. We would live, we would live in our chaotic world from a place and a perspective of leaning back on Jesus, being attuned to his heartbeat, looking from this place out to the world. And I even say, not even just attuned to his heartbeat, I'd say get so close to Jesus that we're attuned to his blood pressure. That our blood pressure begins to match Jesus' blood pressure. I mean, I need this. There are so many things in our world that make my blood pressure rise, my heart palpitate. Literally, last year when we went on sabbatical, um, I went into the doctor. My first week of sabbatical, I went to the doctor because my heart was palpitating. And I've been, into the, I've been to the hospital a few times, ER a couple times, because of heart stuff. And every single time they go, it's stress, manage your stress, go away. And I'm like, okay, this is different this time. I think there's something seriously wrong with my heart. So I go in, hooks me up, does all the tests. He comes in and goes, Dave, it's your stress. 
just manage your stress. And I'm like, I've been trying. Can you, is there a pill? Can you give me a pill? He's like, I'm, I'm not going to give you a pill for that. And, I, and I, when I, what I found on my sabbatical is that there is no pill for that, but there is a posture for that. And the posture is a leaning back on Jesus. A disciple, next slide, is one who sees the world with the sound of Jesus' heart in their ear. It's, they look at the chaotic world. They look at all the stuff that is, is going off on the news cycles, the complexity of our cities, all of that. But they see all of that with the sound of Jesus' heart in their ear. And this is what God has ultimately taught me after years of hard ministry, of leaning into everything and starting uh, everything that starting an endeavor entails, is I have, to, I have to see the world as this disciple did, from a place where I'm close enough to Jesus to hear his heart. You know, I tell you, I think somewhere in the midst of pastoring a church in the first eight years, I lost sight of that. You can lose sight of this even in ministry. I mean, Judas was a close follower of Jesus. And for me, I had my eyes and my ears pressed up against my church and their needs and the city and its complexity and what I thought it needed and then what everyone else around me needed and wanted. And see, when you walk in close intimacy with Jesus, you come to realize that what any city needs, what any family needs, what any neighborhood really needs are people and leaders and pastors who are at least close enough to Jesus to hear his heart so that when they lead people, they can lead people back to that heartbeat. They're like, come over here. This is where it's at. Like, they're that close. That's what, that's what every city needs are leaders and pastors that are close to Jesus' heart. This, I get this picture of me leaned up against Jesus and me calling my church. Says, it's over here. His heartbeat is right here. Everyone, get over here. Like, I, I have to be there, though. See, this, this disciple, his location is probably intended to tell us something about him. He's reclining near Jesus' chest. Now, this is a really, really big deal, especially uh, this is where knowing Greek comes in handy. Now, I don't read Greek, but I read people that read Greek. So here's what's going on here. The disciple of Jesus was in relation to Jesus in the exact same way that Jesus was in relation to God, according to John's prologue. This is a really, really big deal. Uh, look at John 1.18 with me. Look at John 1.18. It says, no one has ever seen God. This is John writing in this prologue. No one has ever seen God. But the one and only Son, who is himself God, is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Okay, so I, I, I wanna, I'm going to read for that one person in the audience who's reading Old King James. Let's use the Old King James, because this actually reads better in Old King James. There's connection. So look on the screen, John 1.8, let's read it in the Old King James, and connect it to John 13. Because what John is doing, he's dropping breadcrumbs at the very beginning of John that, you get to, that, that lead you all the way to the end. So the first breadcrumb is this. It says, no man hath seen God at any time. No one has seen God. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. He's saying, no one has seen God, but there's someone who's coming from God who's actually in his chest, in his bosom. He's making him known because he's so close with him. Does that make sense? Look at what John says in John 13. Now, there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. This is the same word in Greek. This is the same meaning, that the disciple is as intimate with Jesus as Jesus is with the Father. 
Now, if that's too theologically strong for you, I'll back up a little bit. John is at least saying that this disciple relates to Jesus as Jesus relates to the Father. That's, the implications of this are huge for you and for me. Jesus is saying, or what John is saying is that the, the reason why Jesus was able to make the Father known was because he was in his heart. He was up against his chest. He was in his bosom. And he came out from that place going, I want to tell you about the Father. John is saying, and by the way, John is writing a gospel, and John is planting churches, t- proclaiming Jesus, making Jesus known. What gives him the authority to make Jesus known? He's saying, I am in close relationship with Jesus. I am in the bosom of Jesus, therefore I can make Jesus known. Do you get that? How do you and I make Jesus known in this city? We have to make Jesus known from a place of being next to him, in his chest, up against him. Intimacy, next slide. Intimacy with Jesus, therefore, has revelational relevance, meaning we make Jesus known as we know Christ. As we're leaned up against him, our, 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 our ear up against his heartbeat, getting his heart, listening to him, that's how we make him known. So let me get real practical as we close. What does this require? Because if you're here, you're going, okay, I, 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 want, I want to be this close to Jesus. What does this require? What does this mean? What does this look like? Three things. One, you have to show up. You have to show up. We have this thing in our culture where we feel like we, can, we, we, we consume, therefore we are. You guys know what I'm talking about? So if we're like, I don't know if you've ever done this before, but you want to read a book, so you buy the book, and buying the book means you read the book. Anyone else? Like, oh yeah, oh yeah, I, 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 I read, meaning I bought that book. Did you read it? Well, I read some of it. And we think that consuming equates being. So what we do is we consume, even Bibles, like, you might, like, do you, we buy, uh, the Bible's the best-selling book year over year of all time, but it's the least read book year over year of all time. So we think by buying it, by, cons- by bu- purchasing it, therefore we, we have read it. And we do this with all kinds of things in culture, whether it's we want, we want to buy an image, or like, I want to look like so-and-so. By buying, consuming it, I am therefore that thing. Um, and so this bleeds into our prayer life. A lot of us have a prayer life that is imagined, not realized. So we want to pray, and we think that by wanting to pray or buying a book on prayer, therefore we have prayed. Or talking about prayer or wanting to pray. But that is, that is not a thing. What, what leaning back on Jesus requires is showing up. Ron Rollheiser, one of my favorite writers right now, says this. There is no bad way to pray. I'll explain that in a second if you have problems with that. There is no bad way to pray, and there is no one starting point for prayer. All the greatest spiritual masters offer only one non-negotiable rule. You have to show up for prayer, and you have to show up regularly. So what he means by that is this. There's no bad way to pray. You can pray sitting down, standing up, on your knees, out loud, in your head, worship music playing, in silence, on a walk, in your bed. The only non-negotiable rule is you have to show up to pray and pray regularly. Now, you might be thinking, well, you're a pastor. This comes super easy for you. I have clinically off-the-charts ADD, like clinically. Like, one, like five, six years ago, I started seeing a therapist, a psychiatrist. I'm sitting in his chair, and I'm just like, you know, the ADD wiggles. You know, I just have the wiggles. I'm just wiggling everywhere, just doing this. And I'm talking to him, and he's like, are you nervous? 
And I'm like, no, what? No, I'm not nervous. You know, I'm just like, you know, like kind of swiggling. And he's like, look, we're going we're gonna to start this time by taking a test. I'm going to have you take a little test. So he gives me this test. And I didn't know it, but it was an ADD test. And so I'm answering all these questions. And at the end, he goes, you're in the top two percentile of ADD. You have clinically off the charts ADD. And, I, and I, 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 that wasn't helpful. I'm like, I don't know how helpful that is. Now, and, we've, and I've been in therapy ever since, and it's getting a little better, but whatever. So when I say that I'm, like, this is hard for me to, to, to regularly show up for prayer, this is so hard for me. I get so distracted. I get so distracted that I'll sit down to pray, and the, the thought of being distracted and what I will do when I am distracted distracts me. Anyone else? Right? So you're sitting there like, okay, I want to be with Jesus. Okay, I'm going to get distracted a little bit, but what am I going to do? Oh, what I'll do is, and then I'm just, I'm like, wait, what am I doing? During my time away, I journaled that my single biggest weakness in my prayer life is regularity. That is my biggest weakness. So when I say this, it comes harder. This comes really hard for me. Show up to God at least once a day. My prayer right now is showing up to God in the morning and then examine at night. And my hope is that over time that those things merge to where I'm in constant fellowship with God every day. Like every moment of every day. Because sometimes I try to think about God every moment of every day, and sometimes there's a four-hour bl- block of time where I forget about God. And, and what I'll do is I'll think about God randomly at like 3 o'clock. I'm like, I haven't thought about God since before lunch. What have I been doing? I've been literally counseling people and praying, but I haven't really thought about God. Like this, ha- this, this happens. And so what I have to do every single morning is remind myself who I am. Has anyone seen the movie 50 First Dates? Drew Barrymore, Adam Sandler, right? Best movie. By the way, if you haven't seen this movie, I'm about to give it away. Spoiler alert, it's on you. You haven't seen it. It's been out for a long time. You've had your tenants. So <laughs> Drew Barrymore has short-term memory loss in this movie, and she can't remember one day to the next after this accident. So every new person she meets after her accident, she can't remember. So every time she goes to sleep, she, like, her memories are erased, all like erased. But then she falls in love with Adam Sandler's character. And so how in the world are they supposed to progress in a relationship where every single morning she forgets that she loves him? By the end of the movie, in order to progress and move on in life, she has to watch this video that, that she, she watches every morning as soon as she wakes up that details her life, what happened to her, how she fell in love with Adam Sandler's character, the life that she now lives, the baby that they have together. And every morning she goes through this emotional roller coaster of realizing who she is. I am just like that. <laughs> it doesn't matter how great my day is in the Lord, I will wake up and forget who I am. I'll wake up and go, who am I? What, is, what, what am I doing? Who? And I just forget. I just completely forget everything God did the day before, everything that I, I, I just have to remind myself. Every single morning I have to wake up and go, I am in Christ. And oh yeah, I'm a pastor. Whoa, I'm a pastor. Oh my gosh. And then I, like, I'm, I'm redeemed. Like, I have to remind myself every single morning who I am in Christ, what he's done for me by redeeming me, what it looks like to walk in fellowship with God and obedience to him that day. I forget I hope it's different when I'm 50. But life right now, I forget. And so what I have to do is I have to, I've learned to wake up, lean back, get acquainted in intimacy with Jesus. I ask myself a couple of questions. My first question I ask myself is, was my heart warmed? Was my heart calmed? Was it set to the pace and the, even the blood pressure of Jesus? The second question I ask is, was my identity recalled? Who I am in God's world? Was that recalled? Do I know who I am in Christ? And then I always have a bonus question. 
And my bonus question is, was my life directed? I don't usually hit that one. But sometimes my, my, my hope, my prayers, is my life directed? Am I entering into this day knowing where I'm supposed to go? Number two, you have to not just show up, you have to put away distraction. This kind of bleeds into the first one. Imagine this disciple leaning back on Jesus' chest, and there's this super beautiful, intimate moment, and all of a sudden, John's phone just starts going, just blowing up, right? Imagine that, and Jesus is just like, this moment is completely ruined. Are you going to get that? You're distracting me. We're all distracted. When I was on sabbatical, one of my favorite sayings on sabbatical was, let's just not know. Let's just not know. Guys, write that down. This is gold. Let's just not know. So when I went on sabbatical, um, I got a burner phone. I got rid of my phone, my phone number, social media, deleted all my, all my email. Fo- so basically my phone, this is going to be trippy. My phone was a phone. That's all it was, was just a phone. Nothing else was on it. It was just a phone. And you know how when you're with other people and you're talking and then someone says, who was in that show? Who was in... Friends or whatever, whatever it is, right? And everyone's like, I don't, I don't know, I don't know. And then someone grabs their phone, oh, and they grab their phone, and their big old fat thumb just go, start doing this thing. And then everyone else feels permission to grab their phone. Oh, if you're going to be on your phone, I'll be on my phone. And then everyone's gone for like eight minutes. And then everyone's back, and you got the information, but it wasn't that satisfying at all. Just move on. What, I, what we did on our sabbatical was when Ash and I were with more friends or family or whatever, and then that moment came up, I would just sit back and go, hey, Let's just not know. What does it feel like to not know? Do you guys remember that feeling when you didn't know something? When you just didn't know something. And so you're like, what is, what is that thing? You're like, I don't know. And you're like, whoa, I don't know. And so you would carry that. You would carry that tension in yourself. And you would go to a different friends group. And you would go to your other friends. You're like, do you know this thing? You're like, I don't know that either. You're like, oh, my gosh. I don't, and you would, then you would go to a different like, city, and you do you know this thing in this city? And I'm like, we don't know that thing. And you, go to, like, you carried this like, not knowing around. Maybe you're too young to remember this, but that was a thing when I was a kid. <laughs> like, you just didn't know something. And then when you finally figured it out, it was like illumination. We're like, oh my gosh, I know that thing now. That's all gone with phones, by the way. But I brought this back during sabbatical. And so, I would, and so the thing that we held on to was this. Why haven't you seen a baby pigeon? Blow my mind. I'm sitting there, and my wife and I were talking. Like, have you ever seen a baby pigeon? I'm like, we haven't seen a baby pigeon. <laughs> like, pigeons are everywhere. Like, in San Francisco, there are more pigeons than people. You see pigeons everywhere, but you never see baby pigeons. You see baby everything, but never baby pigeons. So I would go around and go, like, have you ever seen a baby pigeon? I'd be with people. Have you ever seen a baby pigeon? And they're like, no, no. And you would, like, start to get f- afraid. You're like, then where do they come from? And, and then everyone grabs their, don't, if you're grabbing your phone right now, shame on you. Don't look it up. Just, if you don't know, just live with it. Keep, keep traveling from city to city asking people if they know, right? So we would just go around. I mean, literally in Rome, we were in random places. Like, have you ever seen a baby pigeon? Like, I've never seen a baby pigeon. No one has seen one. And we would just, I would just say, let's, and then they would grab their phone. I'm like, no, 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 no. Let's just not know. And then when you do that, what happens is that, first of all, you respect pigeons because they keep secrets, right? <laughs> You're like, pigeons. Like I, or you get really afraid of pigeons. You're like, and then you start, I have a theory that pigeons aren't born. They, they fly out of a, a, a hole that's directly from hell. Like they just come out. And I don't know where it is. You haven't found it. But they just fly in the middle of the night, just fly out of hell. 
and they just like go around. I think that's what I think is the, and I still to this day have not seen people in my church have cheated and looked it up and told me and excommunicated them, church discipline, all that stuff. But <laughs> See, our culture is a really powerful narcotic for good and for bad. And the good about narcotics is that they soothe, they protect against raw pain. Our culture has within it the very kind of thing from medicine to entertainment to shield us from suffering. That can sometimes be good, but a narcotic can also be bad, especially when it becomes a way of escaping reality. Our culture, our cultural narcotics shield us from having to face deeper issues of life, faith, forgiveness, morality, mortality. Things like our phones and entertainment can be set against the interior life by keeping us so preoccupied and so distracted that we lose focus on deeper things. What has been created in my city in the tech industry has made our lives wonderfully efficient and has also conspired against depth. Some of you are shallow people, not because you want to be shallow people, because you can't get off your phones. And I even do this. I don't sleep with my phone. We don't. We, 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 we've moved on from that relationship a long time ago. I just don't sleep with my phone. I sleep with it in the other room. But when I'm traveling, sometimes I'll sleep next to my phone for my alarm. And what I find myself doing when my phone's next to me is the first thing I do when I wake up is I grab my phone and I turn it on and I just click the things. Like the things from the thing. And pretty soon I'm in this rabbit hole of things and I have no idea why I'm YouTubing like weird things. Like I don't even know. Like how did I get here? And then and I, when I get there, what I find is almost impossible then to turn that off and then to go to Jesus and then Set, set the interior depth of, of my soul with God. Almost impossible. If I do the opposite, if I don't go to my phone and I first go to Jesus and set that tone, my phone is less appealing to me. This, no one's telling, no one, by the way, everyone knows in, in, in Silicon Valley, everyone knows this. Every, every person who is a founder of a tech company do not let their kids play with their phones. But they're not telling you guys this. And the research is out. Everyone knows this. It's like one of the best kept secrets in Silicon Valley. It is destroying your mind and my mind. But they're not doing anything about it. Even Apple, I'm just kind of riffing here, sorry. Even Apple recently, their new update is, is, is monitoring your screen time and shut your phone off if, you, if you've been there on there long enough, too long. And you can set those, you can set those settings because they know it's destroying you. It's ruining our, it is ruining our, our depth. And so what we need to do is we need to learn how to keep our technology in its place. We have to put away distraction. We have to wake up and go, I will not be distracted. The tone and the tenor of my life will not be set by my phone. It's almost like when Jesus woke up, he went to the Father early in the morning and he prayed. And then he, when he went out, everyone's like, everyone's looking for you. The city is up on the uproar. They're just throwing this party for you. Everyone needs you. And Jesus is like, we're not staying here. We're going to a different town. If I feel like sometimes when we wake up and we turn our phones on, it's just like everyone's saying, we need you. Everyone needs you. You're this, you're that. And that sets the tone for your day, not the Father. Jesus' Jesus' tone was set by the Father. This is what we need. We need that. Third, lastly, and this is where I'll close, we need to let go. There are visionary leaders in here. Many of you can see a future life, a future world, and order the world to make that world a possibility. And God bless you for that. Visionaries are amazing. There are many in here who know how to take objects and numbers and code and materials and relationships and opportunities, even whole companies, and bring them under the, the agenda you have for shaping the world according to your own desires and purposes. And some of those purposes are good and right and godly. And when you go to God, 
In the same way, you attempt to order your world, you attempt to use God to produce your own transformation or try and manipulate God to bring about the changes you have decided you need. And so you go to God and go, oh, I need this thing. I'm going to go here and do this as spiritual discipline because I need this in my life. And you decide, you think you're going to control God. And what you really need to do is you need to release control of your relationship with God to God. You have to go to God in silence and solitude and go, I release all of the burden of trying to control my relationship with you and I release it to you. This takes being alone. This takes solitude and silence. I'm an extrovert. Being alone, I, my idea of being alone is being alone with people I don't know in a coffee house, right? Being alone together. That's my idea of being alone. I'm alone. I don't know anyone, but I'm around all these people. But this, what this takes is being alone alone, really alone. No distraction, no music, no stuff, alone with God sitting there in silence and releasing that control over to God. Robert Mulholland in his famous book on spiritual formation says the practice of silence is a radical reversal of our cultural tendencies. Silence is bringing ourselves to a point of relinquishing to God our control of our relationship with God. Silence is a reversal of the whole possessing, controlling, grasping dynamic of trying to maintain control of our own existence. Silence is the inner act of letting go. We need this. Ruth Haley Barton in her leadership book writes, without the regular experience of being received and loved by God in solitude and silence, we are vulnerable to the kind of leadership that is driven by profound emptiness that we are seeking to fill through performance and achievement. We have to be alone and let go of our control of God, thinking that, God, I need you to do this in my life. And we release that to God and go, God, whatever you want to do in my life right now, do it, God. See, maybe Jesus, maybe Judas, rather, sorry, maybe Judas was following Jesus to try to control Jesus. Maybe Judas was driven by such a profound emptiness that he started to realize Jesus wouldn't bend to his will, and that's when he decided to get rid of Jesus. But the enduring picture of discipleship is leaning back on Jesus, showing up without distraction, letting go of control of whatever happens to Jesus. I know that our world has been insane the last few years, but I'll tell you the only way to get a true perspective of what's going on and have a real capacity to do something about it is from this place of leaning back on Christ. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.